0: Panglory Base here. The Eagle has landed. Bill Wolfe, workplace well-being specialist at Connects Health. After following your content for three months, I view you as a leader in this space. You have a lot of content. It can be hard hitting at times. It's definitely based solidly in reality. Phil, I think we can do better in corporate Australia in terms of well-being. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Alistair. Happy to be here,
0: man. It took a while to get lined up. I'm really pleased. (laughs) I remember, yeah, yeah. Well, and we'll get into this because I think it plays to how busy you are. And as we get through this conversation, I'm going to be really interested in understanding more about your role and what a workplace well-being specialist does, because you're clearly in high demand. It took a long time to get this in the diary. And I remember, and it was three months ago when I first saw a post on LinkedIn that attracted me to your content, and I'm going to go through some of the statistics that your post put out there, because it was quite confronting for me, and it was a picture And it said, in the average Australian workplace of 100 people, 47 have at least one chronic illness, 62 feel burned out, 20 are experiencing a mental health disorder, 44 will experience a mental health disorder at some point, 33 are thinking of quitting, 10 will quit, 5 will use an employee assistance program, and 60 would use a workplace wellbeing specialist if one was offered. Is it really that bad?
1: Um, in short, yes. Um, so these these stats are all taken from either um, Gallup from the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing or uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics. Um, in, in short, yeah, basically. So the average Australian Uh, In inverted inverted collars is not that healthy so having at least one chronic illness one in two of us having that it's it's fairly dire from that perspective I mean our our life expectancy keeps on going up and up because medical technology is increasing Um, the death rate for um, for infants is drastically decreasing which is um, a major factor in life expectancy but our health adjusted life years the gap is sort of growing um, meaning the years that we're healthy uh, and feeling well as compared to the years that we're actually alive is is growing um, I think it's at about well 10 to 12 years for men and a little bit less for uh, which so is what does that concern. mean? We live
0: we live longer, but we feel worse while we're alive.
1: Yeah, we have more ailments. We're living longer, but we have more ailments. We're living with more ailments. Um, we're having, we have more chronic conditions. Um, as well as that, yeah, we know from the statistics that almost one in two of us will experience a mental health disorder in our lives, um, whether that's diagnosed or not. Um, it will be of diagnosable proportions. Um We know that one in five people are experiencing mental health are experiencing a mental health disorder right now uh, which is an astonishing statistic because if you think of a workplace of 100 people you wouldn't think that 20 of them are experiencing a mental health disorder because i guarantee not 20 of them have come up and told you but actually as people we're really really good at hiding when we're struggling which is not a good thing Um, in spite of this, one of the things that I found, what I continually find most confronting is that we've got 20 people who are experiencing mental health disorder, but five, and that's generous, will use an EAP service in any given 12-month period. Uh, the stats are somewhere between 2 and 5% on average using EAP. And we tend to think of EAP services as assistance programs for anyone that doesn't know. We tend to think of them as a, a safety net. Like, oh, it's fine. We've got an EAP. Everything's going to be okay. But we know from the data that that's just not the case. Because if only two or five out of 100 people and out of the people who are actually experiencing mental health disorders are using it, and it's not, it's not working. Um, I have an article on this coming out the, tomorrow, next week. It's... Coming out soon. I've scheduled it. It's coming out. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I find most confronting. That the things that we're currently doing collectively aren't really working that well. So I don't want to say. I mean, yes, it's there are some challenges to overcome, but I don't think we we should be looking at it like, oh my God, the sky is falling in, because there are things that we can actually do about this. Definitely.
0: Well, it's the awareness that helps you understand that the problem is bigger than you think. But without panicking, it then goes, well, what can I do about it? So you see those stats and you see the data and you go, that's actually quite confronting. I didn't know it was that bad. And then you get to hear the stats on employee assistance programs and you go, well, not many people are using them. And it's very much a downstream net at the end, which I guess is going to catch some really dire cases. But a lot of people that could use that help are not using it. And that makes me think about, well, what should I be doing upstream? So the difficulties of life come in all shapes and forms, and some of them are going to come from the workplace, and some are going to, some are going to come from outside of the workplace. But given we spend over half our time working, then it's a, it's a massive contributor to how we're feeling. And as a leader in business, you want to do the right thing for a few reasons. You want to do the right thing because it's the right thing, and because people deserve to have a good life, and if you're in a position to influence that, or if you're in a position to get it wrong and make it worse, you need to be aware of that and you need to do something. But then there's the whole commercial outcome around it. It makes sense anyway, even if you didn't want to do the right thing. Happy people do more. And in fact, you've got some data on that as well, don't you, in terms of equating workplace well-being to productivity and the ability to contribute more in the workplace?
1: Yeah, most definitely. Um it depends which metric you use. I mean, there's been there's been a ton of different studies done on this over the years. Um, it's somewhere between somewhere between two dollars and five dollars. Memory um, ROI on wellbeing programs, but that's that's completely dependent on what the actual program is. You can't just throw me into anything wellbeing and and have it pan out for you and, and produce that sort of roi it needs to be measured it needs to be targeted it needs to be effective uh, we can't just chuck money at anything and that starts with figuring out what the problem actually is and then designing programs to address that specific problem and i guarantee where you start is is not where you end up um and back to your point about yeah eap is very downstream what can we do Stream from that in in my experience most people do not need a clinical psychiatrist to help them or a psychologist they don't have uh, they're not having a mental health crisis at the time now this this is for most people obviously some people are and some people do need that but the majority of people just need a little bit of help they just need a little bit of support they need some strategies to figure out how they deal with whatever situations going on at work. They need to increase their health fundamentals. Maybe they're not sleeping well enough. They're, they need some stress management techniques. They're not exercising well. Their nutrition, use, they don't actually need a psychiatrist to help them with that. It's a very cost inefficient way to help them by giving them a clinical psychiatrist. The much better way to do it is to give them someone who is experienced in helping them to put those strategies into place. And that's I mean, that's exactly what we do, and that's exactly what I've found to be the most effective way. So we find that, yeah, five people are using EAP service, but 60% plus would use a well-being specialist if there was one available. And that's what we find from, from our data that most people will engage with one because that's actually what they're what they're looking for. And there's a number of different ways that we can utilize that and a number of different upstream strategies that can prevent people from actually going down that path and and going into harm, basically, whatever that harm looks like. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There's there's a ton of different things that we can do before it gets to the level of mental health disorder and needing. That sort of crisis intervention. How do we prevent the crisis?
0: Not how do we deal with the crisis. So, if I'm a CEO of a medium to large company, and I followed your content on LinkedIn, and I'm starting to get it, and I believe in it, and I think you're talking sense, and I want to do the right thing for my employees, so I, I speak to the executive team, and perhaps I speak to the board, and I get some budget, and I say, "I'm going to do. I'm going to do something." And somebody goes, "Well." Surely just the Headspace app and Pizza Fridays is enough. Why do you need to bring Phil mm-hmm. and his team in? What's the conversation that I'm then having to convince them to bring you in? And then we'll get into what the beginning of that engagement looks like.
1: Yeah. So first of all, you've got to look at what your, what the problems are. Where are the health gaps? So that's that comes from talking to your people. You have to have very close connection and a lot of feedback channels with your people, whether that be surveys, focus groups, um, weekly check-ins, whether it be um, employee committees um, that report to their managers and report to the execs. There's a number of different ways you can do that, but you need that data. And people are very, very resistant to do surveys Moment, I everyone we talk to, oh, our, our staff have got survey fatigue, survey fatigue, this, yes, survey fatigue, that. People don't have survey fatigue. They're not sick of surveys. They're sick of bullshit surveys. They're sick of getting this pulse survey sent out that they fill in and then who knows where that data goes and nothing happens with that information. That's what they're sick of. If, if on the other hand, they get a set of questions, that's entirely related to them, that they can feed back anonymously to their superiors and they know that that will be listened to and it will be action based on the information that they give. They'll fill out surveys every single day. That's fantastic. Not sick of the surveys. They're sick of their surveys not being action. So that's a really good way to get the information that you're after. So the first thing is to find out from your people what they see as the issues are where the health and wellbeing gaps are from their perspective. You can also look to your bleed costs. So bleed costs are things like absenteeism, presenteeism, lost productivity, um, your workers' compensation cases, your turnover. Stack those up against industry norms uh, and see how you're actually faring. And this is something, this is where you get your budget from, essentially, because your bleed costs are costing you so much money that it's it's unbelievable. And the funny thing is when we stack up bleed costs and put it next to what the projected well-being budget will be, it's it's almost laughable. Um, there was a very large telecommunications company who shall remain nameless, who were in about instituting their health and well-being program and when we started talking budget they identified these problems they'd identified turnover they identified productivity they identified workers compensation and when we started talking budget it was in the realm of i can't remember exactly but it was not more than 40 dollars person per year now to put that in context if you turn over one, employee. Uh, let's say they're on the Australian average wage of eighty-five. I think it's eighty-eight thousand dollars. It'll cost somewhere between fifty and two hundred and fifty percent of their wage to do that. Uh, to in loss of productivity, in sourcing for that job, in hiring, in the adaptation period, in the disruption to teams, fifty to two hundred and fifty percent of eighty-eight thousand. So minimum. Absolute minimum for one person, $44,000. Maximum, off the top of my head, what is that? It's about $200,000. This company was budgeting $40 per person. This was, what's that? It was about $8,000, $8,000 to $10,000. So not even a quarter of the lowest approximation of what it would cost to turn over one person. But because bleed costs don't show up on anyone's, on anyone's balance sheet and it's not a black and white figure and no one's responsible for it, we can't be blamed for it because at the bleed cost, it doesn't exist. But a budget is a black and white figure. A budget is attributed to me and I have to make sure that I'm getting ROI for that budget even though it might be a fraction of what the bleed costs actually are, I'm responsible for it now. And everyone can look at it and go, okay, what have you done that budget? No one's pointing at the bleed costs going, okay, how are we going to stem this from? So that's what we need to do. Again, um, long answer to your question, but basically find out where the wellbeing gaps are. Find out what these things are costing you. And then it becomes a simple equation. You just take that overall approximated cost um, and you divide it by your um, your projected ROI figure. Let's say you want to you reduce it by, you want to reduce these costs by 20%. Then you divide that 20% by what ROI you're after. Let's say you want three to one, and then that becomes your budget. So if you believe costs are a million dollars, you want to improve those by, and that's pretty conservative for a hundred-person, hundred-person company. Very conservative. You want to reduce them by twenty percent. That's two hundred thousand dollars. You want an ROI figure of three to one. So sixty-six and six-six thousand dollars. That's that's your budget. That's a very, very conservative estimate of what your budget could be, uh, whilst returning a whilst reducing costs by twenty percent, returning three-to-one ROI. It doesn't really need to be too much more complicated than that. There's obviously a little bit of nuance in there and every company is different, but that's basically how you do it. So that's where I would definitely start.
0: Simple, really simple, really easy to understand. But I suspect where most companies would struggle and companies that I've worked at, would and if I was an HR leader in in one of those companies and I believed in this, the first thing I'd do is go where on earth is my data that's going to tell me where the bleed costs are, and and I imagine that I could have pre-conversations and pre-engagements with you to say, can you help me build a business case for this? We know there is one, but we just can't surface the data. We haven't got the reporting. No one's accountable for it. And I want to be I want to see what the situation is now, and I want to measure the difference in the future. Is that something that you can assist with? Because I wouldn't know where to start.
1: Yes, definitely. We absolutely can. Um, building a business case is crucial right at the beginning, um, and I'll I'll tell you how to do it exactly now. Essentially, take your absenteeism costs. We've actually we've built we've built a course that teaches you to do this exact thing. It's called the Workplace Wellness Blueprint, and it takes you through step by step exactly how to do this with all the templates uh, included in that. On our website. But basically, you take the things that are measurable take your absenteeism, your turnover, and your workers' compensation. Now, if you're in an industry that you can measure productivity, absolutely do that. So if you're in a call center, if you work in a factory, if you're in sales, you can absolutely take those as well. Um, And then you work out. For let's say for absenteeism, you work out how much you're paying people um, per year. Work out what that is per day when they're absent. That's how much is costing you per day. Now we won't take into account, for, for all intents and purposes, the lost productivity for that day, which is usually about two to three times absenteeism, because we want a rock solid figure that cannot be disputed, it cannot be argued with. So. That's how you work out your absenteeism? What are you paying them per the day? If they're not there, that's what you're paying them not to be there. So, those are your costs. Extrapolate that across how many days absent people have. There you go. Your turnover figure. Hopefully, companies are tracking how much it costs to turn people over. If not, just go with the lowest approximation of what the Australian um, Human Resource Institute suggests, which is 50%. So, how many people are you turning over? 50% of their salary add that up, and that's your bleed cost. Uh, For workers' compensation, that's a very easy thing to work out because you will have those costs, um, and you'll have the increases in your insurance premiums. So if we just start with those three things, then we can get a very good idea of how much money you're bleeding without realising it. There's a ton of other ways that we can do this and a ton of other things that we can measure, but those three things cannot be argued with by anyone they're at the lowest end of the spectrum and they're black and white figures that can't be argued with so we would absolutely start there build a business case from those and then also reference the fact that you've got about 12 other metrics that we're going to improve and that will have a measurable effect but these are the ones that we're going to focus on and and they'll qualify our ROI. So yes, in short, we do we do help with that business case, but you can do it yourself. And if you need help with that, just go under our course. I think it's a couple hundred, three hundred bucks or something, and you'll know everything you need to know step by step about how to build that business case and also how to run an entire program. So yeah, we've given away a lot there.
0: So I've got I've got a credible case now, and it's it's based in data. It's credible. I've convinced everyone. I've now got a real thorough understanding of what I'm bleeding out and it, it, it pays for itself, the investment I want to make. So I want to get onto what the beginnings of that engagement looks like and, and your radar and the things that you look at first to try and gauge the health of the company. But before I get into that, I just want to go back to the survey thing because you're right about survey fatigue and the fact that things don't happen as a result of surveys. A lot of companies I've worked in have been big machines, big machines, and it takes a lot of time to get things done. Uh, they have to go through multiple bodies, and the executive group have to look at things, and then politics get involved. And, and you know, I'm sure we can chip away, and we can try and improve lots of these things. But given that a lot of people are in these machines right now, and they want to do a survey and they want to get some data and they want to do something with it, are there any quick wins? You know, Have you seen people that go, yeah, you've got a survey and you're taking some data and you're now pumping it through the machine, but do this to maintain momentum?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I get asked this all the time. And actually, today's um, today's LinkedIn post is exactly about this. So there's a few things that you can work on to get those quick wins. Um the most important thing, without doubt, is your team well being dynamics. And that just means that making people aware of the factors that influence their own and their teammates' uh, well being and how to actually influence that. If we can connect people to that and we can make people aware of those dynamics and how they can influence them, then well being improves as a matter of course. So you can do that, you can start doing that right now. Just sit down, have the conversation with your team members as a leader, talk to your team. What are the minimum standards they need to be, to be at equilibrium, not exceed, but not suffer? What are the minimum standards, their health fundamentals of rest and recovery, of sleep, of exercise, of social interaction? That's the workload that they can maintain that keeps them at a steady state. Then We'll call that X. And then for Y, what is the ideal level that they would need in order to excel? Uh, How much learning and development development do they need? How much rest and recovery? How much exercise? How much collaboration? All those things. We'll call that Y. So as a leader, for a very quick win and a very impactful initiative, always work to not breach X, that minimum standard, and always be working on how you achieve why in the context of the work environment. Obviously, you've got to balance the resources and and the requirements of the job. It has to be practical. We can think, okay, I'd love to do this, I'd love to do that, but if it doesn't balance practically, then what's the point of that? It has to be practical. It has to be achievable. So not breaching X and working towards Y. Now, that's what I would work on first and foremost. But in terms of quick wins, the one of the quickest wins you can get and one of the most impactful things is communication. So surveys are great, yes, but the most effective way to figure out what your people want, how they're feeling, how they're doing, not just what they're doing, but how they're doing, is to ask them. They will tell you, they absolutely will tell you if you ask them and they know that they're in an environment where they can express themselves without fear of reprisal, which, by the way, is essentially almost all of psychological safety, not necessarily comfort, not necessarily being okay all the time, but being feeling safe enough that you can express yourself without fear of, of any detrimental effects then you're going to get the absolute truth. If they have that safety, then they're going to tell you exactly what they think. And from that communication, you can start to build out what you need. And you can do this without wellbeing specialists, without corporate health, without any of that. You can do that in your own team because your people will be telling you exactly what they want and exactly what they need. So communication at all levels, constantly and, Working on team wellbeing dynamics are probably the two quickest, easiest, most impactful things that anyone can do. And you can do that starting right now. As soon as you finish listening to this podcast, don't leave early because hopefully it's gonna be that's the quickest, easiest way that you can impact for sure.
0: And is it individual team levels, is that the best the best vehicle for getting this feedback and having these honest conversations because, because big town halls don't work uh, for, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and and suggestion boxes seem very 1980s.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, again, really good question. And absolutely. Yes. It's amongst teams. It's like, so your organizational culture, that's your, that's your direction. That's your values that are printed up on the wall and everyone agrees that yep, we're headed in this direction. But your teams—that's your microculture. That's the stuff that affects you every single day in a very, in a very acute way. It's like, it's like voting for a federal government and a local government. Federal government, yeah, sure, they're going to direct policy and they're going to make these changes on a, on a national level. That's all well and good. I'm much more interested in what my local government is doing because that affects me all the time. That affects me day to day. The the other stuff will affect me eventually, but. My local government; those are the elections that I'm getting involved in. It's creating microcultures, and if you can create a microculture of well-being, wherein everyone knows what what it takes for their team members to be well and to be at their best, how they work at their best, what their boundaries are, what they can and can't ask for, and when, and everyone understands that and is committed to helping to influence that in a positive way, then you've created this microculture of a highly functioning team. And high functioning teams, far, far better than high performing teams. You can have a high performing team that is dysfunctional, but it's very difficult to have a high functioning team that doesn't also perform well. So they're, they're not the same. They're very closely related, but they are not the same. So having a highly functioning team That's the goal. And if you can get one team to be highly functioning, then you can get another team to function highly and another team and another team. So if you've got 20 teams that are functioning at a high level within an organisation, that's a pretty damn strong organisation. So, yes, I would absolutely focus on inter-team, intra-team, sorry, dynamics, and then that's going to add up to a a much, much greater whole. So focus on your teams first.
0: I want to come back to that one a bit later on because it started. It's made me think about organisations I've worked in in the past where we have a senior leadership team that are all trying to do the right thing, but they do it differently. And then they have their teams that learn from them, and then their teams that learn from them that learn from them. And so, so individual teams might be getting that right, but then we have people within those individual teams that then have to work together in other shared communities. You know, whether it be a chapter or or, or a skills group that may not be functioning as well as you would want them to, but they're learning, the part of different families and they're learning different family values in each of their home teams that we're then trying to stitch together. I won't get into that now, but I want to come back to it because what I want to start with is, so I've convinced everyone I want to do it. You're, you're, you're rolling in on day one and you're going to help me build something to address upstream the things that we can do to make it a more healthy workplace, better well-being for all. You've rolled into a number of these assignments now. You have an early warning system. You have a radar. You like to get the measure of the organization that you're working with. What sort of things do you look at first to understand where your attention needs to be focused?
1: Yeah. So essentially, we look at, we get the C-suite together, first and foremost, um, and we look at how involved they first of all are within the well-being of their teams. So do they sit on the well-being committee? Are they involved in any of the uh, the well-being initiatives or do they not have time? How how literate, how well-being literate are they and how committed are they to well-being? Are they just signing the check and saying go for it or are they committed to that within the organization Is that is that's where we start. If you have commitment from the top, then everything, it will filter down. And the decisions that are made in the organisation will reflect that commitment. So we absolutely start with the C-suite. Next, we go to the team leaders, the line managers, because they are, without doubt, the most important people uh, in the workplace in terms of staff well-being. Um, there's recent data out on... The fact that someone's line manager is as important as their romantic partner, more important than their therapist or health professional, and as important as a romantic partner in terms of influencing their well-being. So we first of all look at the C-suite. We next look at the literacy of line managers, and then we look at the dynamics within teams. How functional are those dynamics? How skillful and how literate are the individuals themselves in their health and well-being how much do they know about their uh, their team members well-being how how much agency do they have over the well-being of themselves and their team members and that's all that's all fairly simple to measure Um, we do this through a number of meetings through focus groups and through surveys it doesn't take long to assess these things. It doesn't take long to get a very, very clear picture of what's going on within the organisation. And then you can stack that up with, what's the turnover rate? What's the job satisfaction rate? um, What's the performance? How's that stack up against industry averages? And you can put this all together and it creates a pretty clear picture of what's going on and where the gaps are and what we need to actually fix. And then when we start to address it, we now have a hierarchy of what we need to do in order to address it. Is it coming from the top? Is it the line managers? Is it the people? Is it their dynamics? Is it then their teams? Is it workload? What are the issues and what are our priorities? And in what order should we address that? But without, usually the order we would do it in is, we look at the team well-being dynamics. We upskill people in those. We look at individuals and we upskill them, their health and well-being skill set so that they can be healthy and well under any circumstances, even challenging ones. And then we anonymously feed back that information to the organization and we work with senior leaders uh, and line managers on creating an environment that it's where it's helpful, it's easier, sorry, for people to be healthy and well. So we're creating higher skilled individuals in health and well-being and we're creating easier environments for them to be healthy and well in. And when we do that, it compounds the benefit because we're, we're creating let's say, Michael Jordan and getting him to play in a Wednesday afternoon social league, creating high-skilled people in less challenging environments and that's how we compound benefit and that's usually the hierarchy of uh, of how we address things.
0: And when you do that and you start to build up a picture of the individual health of the organization, what are the big trends that you're seeing right now in terms of things that organizations are typically getting wrong?
1: Yeah. um, Burnout is a big one. That's not something, it's not necessarily something that organizations get wrong, but it is a symptom of. What's going on within the organization? So, expecting too much of workers and not allowing, not actively allowing for recovery. What we see mostly, and this is, it's frustrating to no end for me. The way we look at workers is how much can we get out of this person? How hard can we possibly push them? And how much can they produce for us instead of looking at what is what is the most sustainable way to get a high to get good performance out of this person how do we how do we maintain a high level of performance over time because if we're asking for 100% effort 100% effort gives us 100% of results and then over time just by the very nature of Human beings and the nature of energy. 100% effort is going to give us 95% results, and then 90 and 85 and 80. You're still putting in 100% of effort, but you're getting diminishing returns over time. And this is what this is the main thing that leads to burnout. We're still pushing as hard as we can, or even harder and harder, and we're getting less and less for it because we have this this culture in most companies. I won't say all, but most companies are looking at it as how much can I squeeze out of each person. It's all about productivity and it's all about high performance. It's not about high function. It's not about sustainable performance. And that is the number one thing that companies are getting wrong at the moment, looking at how much they can get out of someone, not how can we how can we make this performance sustainable? Because if you're getting 85% of the absolute best a person can give all the time, every single day, week in, week out, year in, year out, and they're happy to give it because they're not drained at the end of the day, I've got something left in the tank, I guarantee you're going to end up with a lot more at the end than if you're asking for 100% and getting to return. returns. And by the way, that giving that 85%, if you've got something left in the tank at the end of the day and you're taking that home to your family you're happy and you're healthy and your social life is good, the results that that eighty-five percent of effort gets you will increase over time. I guarantee it will increase because you're not running yourself ragged all the time. You have space to improve. You have time and you have energy to get better and to give to get better results for the same amount of effort. Rather than getting diminishing returns, we're getting increasing returns. So that's that's the one of the most important things companies should look at how do we how do we create sustainable high performers, not how do we squeeze every last drop out of our people. And there's different ways to do that. But yeah, it comes down to the mindset first and foremost. That's that's probably the most worrying trend that we're seeing. Not allowing people making performance sustainable and not being active in how do we help our people to
0: recover. So if that's one of the biggest things you see, then it it's like you said, there's, there's things you can do about it. It's gonna be one of the biggest areas where you provide interventions. And I'm I'm interested in that one. So so you you you've told me about this. I now get it, I understand it, I want this to be a thing in my organization. How do I get there? it is it, is it just you educate me, I apply the right attitude but then I'm thinking, all right, what are my controls and my safety mechanisms? How can I understand workload and what I'm asking of the team? How can I apply some science so if I know that they're close to the 85 and they're not they're not at the 100? You know, Do I do this by touch and feel, or can I do this through data and controls?
1: It can be a little bit of both. It's mostly touch and feel, but it also needs to be some systems for people to fall back on and to guide them because not everyone is an expert in this. So there's... There's certain protocols that we put in place. First of all, it's about educating people on what they actually need to be healthy and well and finding uh, those minimums and those ideals, that X and that Y. That's first and foremost, education. And then we have a system, uh, a set of protocols in place about when you communicate with people, these are the things that you should ask. This is what you should be finding out. This is what you're... And from an individual perspective, this is what you can tell your manager when you're struggling, when you're doing well. And there's no one answer to that because different things work for different people, but it absolutely has to be touch and feel. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to get in there and talk to people uh, and work it through with them, but there are protocols and there are certain systems that you can use to make that a lot easier easier. And you can absolutely collect the data on it absolutely can and should collect data on that and there's very simple ways that we can do that so yeah it's both it's data driven process driven it's also touch and feel and the more you do it the better you become at that and that's just that's just so important upskilling managers in how to do that effectively is incredibly important and you, you only get better through experience.
0: Yeah, because it sounds like you, you're you building a cultural movement there. You're making it a culture from the top down that that we care. And then we have the right conversations and we ask the right questions to understand. And then we can do something about And then we adjust based on the answers we get to those questions. What does a, a transformation typically look like from a team of leaders, from executive down th- right through to line managers look like to put them in that mindset and put them in that that cadence and that method of behaving so that they start to apply those principles
1: yeah good question it basically it's showing them what is possible and then having them experience what is possible so if you try this this will work do this for x amount of time and then you'll see the results and once you see the results it's addictive you'll want to keep going it's kind of like It's kind of like regular exercise. So if you talk to anyone who exercises regularly, it's one of the most important parts of what they do. It makes them feel better, makes them more energetic, stronger, healthier, fitter. It improves every aspect of their lives. There's there's an old quote. It says, um, regular exercise will make you a better person in every aspect of your life. And if you don't believe that, you've never exercised regularly. So that's what it's about. That transformation is about teaching them what to do, uh, giving them some very definitive principles of do this and this will happen. And then once that happens, it's almost impossible for them to ignore those results and they'll want to keep going. It's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's a, it's a virtuous cycle because we can't just order people. We can't just order people to do things and expect them to do it. It's sort of the difference between having uh, a black and white plan and having a framework. We give them a starting point, we connect them to those results and then they can adapt that framework as they go along. Whereas in a plan, do this week one, do this week two, do this week three, that can easily be disrupted or skipped or forgotten about, misused. Whereas teaching them frameworks and having them drive that uh, for themselves and their teams, that's that's where we get that real transformation. That's where we get sustainable change over time. Connecting them to what's possible, and then allowing them the freedom to to drive that themselves within, yeah, within the frameworks that you that you teach.
0: And I can really see that that working with a leadership community of of any level of maturity or experience. I imagine you can get to a position where you've presented enough data and you've provided enough scenarios for them to work through that they can start to see the cause and effect and the benefits that will come from it. And that hopefully will start to yeah. change behaviors and, and the way in which teams are led will will start to be different. Thinking about the up upstream, the, the most basic things that we can all do to bring our best selves to life, including personal life and work. How does that work with the wider organization? So, you, you know, you talked about some core pillars of well-being there. Exercise, you know, we've also got nutrition. We've got sleep. These are really basic things, and science say if you get these right, you'll become as close to superhuman as you can be in a human body. But it's really hard to tell, to tell people about this because the world and the internet is awash with different advice. People don't always like to be preached to, and, and sometimes within organizations, there's a degree of cynicism and it doesn't matter what you're rolling out. It'll just be the next big thing that the bosses want because it makes them feel good and look good. So so how do you bring some of these basics out with your wider organizational community without being preachy?
1: Yeah, that, that's the trick, isn't it? Because there is so much information and misinformation and there's so many different paths to achieve the same thing. There are, there are some hard and fast truths for 99% of the population and it's six to eight hours of sleep. Well, actually, no, sorry, even further than that. It's adequate sleep, it's regular exercise, and it's clean nutrition, and it's adequate hydration. Those are the absolute pillars. That is what everyone needs. And I think that's how we can do it without being preachy, saying adequate and regular. It doesn't mean that, okay, you have to sleep for eight hours a night because that's that's the number and that's what everyone needs. That's actually not true. I I don't need and struggle to get eight hours. I've worked it out. I'm a, I'm a huge data nerd for myself. Um, I know that I need seven hours and between 15 and 25 minutes of sleep a night. If I'm getting that, that's absolutely perfect. Um, I've tracked this over a long time, Um, really with the wearables. I mean, I have a wearable, but we shouldn't really be relying on that data. What we should be relying on is how we feel. So if someone comes in and they say, I don't need eight hours of sleep I only need five hours of sleep okay what if we try some different things what if we try getting six hours six and a half hours seven hours seven and a half hours and rather than rather than preaching what they actually need you ask them how they're feeling once they get that how much sleep do you think you need what makes you feel at your best in regards to diet some people do keto some people do plant-based some people are omnivores carnivores whatever what makes you feel your best how can you be at your best and then you help them with that hopefully with the the advice of a professional help them to optimize that so it's going to look different for every single person and especially these days because everyone has a very strong opinion of what's best for them we just have to make sure that people are doing what's right for them and that's how we get around that preachiness because it can be really easy to fall into that. I know what's best, just do what I say, and you'll be fine. Now that may be true in most instances, but it's just important work. So working with people to connect them to what works for them and how they can be at their best, that's what we need to do. Um, it's it's a slower process. Uh an often more frustrating process, but it's the answer. It's it's how we get to it. And a lot of managers, in a lot of workplaces would be thinking, that's a lot of work. That sounds really hard. And yeah, it is a bit, it is quite a lot of work. And communicating with your people all the time is a lot of work. And working out the different well-being dynamics is a lot of work. But the alternative is that you don't know these things and you can't influence these things. And these things are detrimental to you instead of being of benefit. So yeah, it's a lot of work, but everything's a lot of work. It just I suppose it just matters what you what you choose to put your effort into based on the results that you want. Like yeah, it's a lot of work, but so is so is having people that break down. So is having people leave your company. So is having people who are uh, burnt out and break down so everything's a lot of work just yeah decide what work you want to do
0: well nothing's worse than an employee compensation claim anyone that's ever had to go through one of those you know if you can avoid those you've got a lot more time for making people feel well
1: absolutely and i think um, the mental stress the average mental stress claim i think is up to about 16 16 or 17 weeks now um which is like that's work weeks, 16 or 17 work weeks. So that is that is a long time. And that's on average. Some of them are far, far longer. Physical, I think, is still at seven, seven ish weeks. We have a number of postnight about 17 now. You want to avoid those at all costs.
0: Definitely. I'm interested in which organizations you've seen that are getting it right in making space for well-being upstream because it's a thing you've got to do sensitively and inclusively as well and and in my mind as you've been telling me about some of these things i've been creating comedy constructs like 80s movies where the ceo gets everyone to jog around the oval at eight o'clock on the morning he just wants to smash them doing laps because he's a fit runner that's not the answer The answer is something different, but I'm sure some organizations are really getting it right to make space for sleep, nutrition, rest, exercise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's not industry dependent. I mean, we work, pardon me, we work in a lot of different industries like we're across Blue Collar, um, some government recruitment, we're in pharmaceuticals, we're in insurance, like. There is no one industry that gets this right or wrong. Um, There's no size of company that gets it right or wrong. Um, Some of the, we're in five people companies that have gotten it wrong for years and we're in 500 people companies uh, that have gotten it right for years. The, The common denominator in the companies that I won't say are getting it right, but the companies who are, really working towards doing the best they can, they have at least one strong person high up who gives a shit. And they don't need to be that that 80s movie paradigm of the super fit boss and everyone else has to be super fit. You've got a triathlete that sits on the board so everyone else has to be. They can be actually quite um, stereotypically unhealthy but they give a shit about their people and they understand that the well-being of their staff is so incredibly important and they want to influence that in a positive way. And We just had had a meeting the other day um, with an organisation where the CEO is now thinking about about legacy, about how do I make this the best place for my people because I'm not going to be here for that much longer. So... What am I going to leave to them? How am I going to be remembered? Am I going to have a net positive benefit on them or a net negative or neutral? Neutral not great. No one wants to be neutral. You've forgotten in an instant. So the common denominator is having that strong, dedicated person who gives a shit and will actually do something about it. There's a difference between, yeah, between caring and saying you care and caring and showing that you care, doing something about it. That's so if you're in an organization right now and you're on the the people and culture team or you're on the C-suite or you're a manager or anything, just know that you can make the difference. You can be the difference if you're ready to drive it and you're you care and you're willing to show that and take action on that. That's all it takes. One strong person who's willing to do what it takes to help people. That's really all it takes.
0: Quite often the biggest thing with the art of the possible and understanding what you can do is having your horizons widen and understanding what is possible. So in some of the organizations that you've seen, that if you could take the best that you've seen in all the organizations that you've worked in, Could you describe, you know, walking around a typical organization and saying, well, I'll look over there and that's how that team behaves and that's what they do and that's how they've made space for exercise and I'll look over there and that's what they're doing around psychological safety and there's an exemplar of good behaviors. Have you got a list of things where you could say, look, this is what perfection could look like. It might take you a while to get there, but know that it's possible. Um, In short,
1: no. Um, there's not a list of what perfection looks like because it is so incredibly different from team to team, but um, there are there are some common themes that we see amongst them. Um, it's funny you mentioned as as you're walking around because yeah, literally as you're walking around offices, you can see these things, you see people having lunch together. you see people going on walks together, you see them talking about not just what they did on the weekend but their active recovery strategies on the weekend they're talking about what they had for dinner last night how they slept last night um, they're using they' using very descriptive words about how they're feeling and're not they're not angry they're not emotional they're not sad they're feeling threatened they're feeling fearful they're anxious about x they're they're overwhelmed because of this they speak very openly and descriptively to each other because they can label these emotions and they feel comfortable and safe enough to share them with the people around them so it's i suppose it's about being open being communicative communicative, and being safe and secure enough to share these things with each other. And from there, it looks completely different for everyone. You might have two people who love going to the gym and lifting heavy things together every morning. That's someone else's idea of an absolute nightmare. They might prefer to go and do some deep breathing exercises together or go for a walk around the block. It's different for everyone. But you have these teams who are in tune with what they need, what their team members need, and aren't afraid to talk about it and to help each other with it. So there's some common things that these teams do together, but it's, it is, it's it's really, really different from person to person. But you will often see them eating lunch together and you will always hear them laughing together. Always, always, always. You won't have a high-functioning team who respects and trusts each other who don't laugh at each other's jokes, that's probably you. That's your barometer. If you walk around as a CEO and your people aren't laughing at each other's jokes, no
0: problem. I really like that. I like that a lot, and and I can really see the advantages and the benefits, and it sounds like the perfect place to be. It would be remiss at this point in time not to talk about a shift to more remote work, and you know, some organizations are still for it, some organizations aren't anymore, I am a big fan of it. I think it provides a lot of flexibility for people, but I also know there's dangers. So how do we maintain that that good stuff that you've seen, people laughing together, people having lunch together, in a, in a world where people also want the flexibility to work remotely? And, and that can be really good for the family, but it can also be dangerous because you get locked to your laptop screen perhaps for a little bit longer than you should each day.
1: Yeah, I think... It's a really, really tough one. I think fully remote work, it's very, very difficult to to maintain that level of connection and to actually create meaningful connections with people. It's, It's not impossible, but, I mean, do you really want to have a cup of tea with someone over Zoom? You've just had... You've just had nine Zoom meetings that day. The last thing you want is to have a trivia quiz over Zoom and everyone, let's get together and talk about our weekend and, yeah, have a cup of tea or a glass of wine. I mean, okay, yeah, sometimes that can work, but it's just adding to one more Zoom conversation that you've got to have. It's not impossible for fully remote people to be connected. Um, It just depends on the type of person, but it is very now, I'm, I'm a lot more for flexible work. Um, I work predominantly from home and I love it, but it's also very important that I actually get in to see people, to speak to them one-on-one because so much is missed when you're online. Um, so I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle of people having the flexibility to work from home or work remotely when they need to but still having a reason to meet up with each other. Now, I'm not a big fan of mandating everyone needs to be in the office uh, this many days a week without being able to tell them exactly why. So if you can't tell your people why they should come into the office and why they need to be there, then you've got to question whether they should. And there are a tonne of great reasons why people should be in the office. You've got to find the ones that apply to you, to your people, and then communicate that because, because I said so, that's not a great reason. That's how we speak to children. Maybe we shouldn't speak to children that way, but that's how we speak to children, not to professionals who we entrust with the future of our companies, of our organisations. So this is a much deeper topic and one that um, actually, now that you mention it, I'm going to put out an updated, um, some updated content on this, updated article on this, um, on the strategies that we can use to help connect remote workers and and establish their wellbeing. But, yeah, I think it's very difficult when people are fully remote, so allowing them that flexibility to work how and when they choose, but still coming up with the right reasons and and making that more accessible for them to be together and create that
0: connection. It's making me think about organization. Yeah. It's making me think about being really intentional with that connection, intentional connection. So so. whether you're saying you've got to be here three days a week in the office, I've got to be here two days, you know, maybe change it and go, look, there's a bit more flexibility, but two days in a fortnight, I really want you to connect so come into the office but don't come into the office and sit on zoom meetings you know plan plan the calendar start to build a culture where the whole organization can plan the calendars and say when you're in you're connecting and we are going to have lunch again you've got to be careful there because you don't want to make it you know the boss says you have to come to lunch because people want some degree of autonomy and flexibility but make it so it's worth it say we're going to connect we're going to do this um, think about what those activities might be that are right for the team. And they could be different for each for different teams as to how they can connect best. But if it's intentional, then it's worth it. it but not not coming in to sit on Zoom meetings with people that are in different locations.
1: Yeah, exactly. And not coming in just to sit in meetings. There's, there was an organization. um it was, it was a little while ago now and it has changed. But essentially people were coming in two days a week and they were just sit in meetings for those two days because they had to maximize the time that people were face to so face. It was just meeting after meeting after meeting. And people would dread coming in because who wants to sit in meetings all day? That's my idea, an absolute nightmare. So making it making it enjoyable, making people want to come in and want to interact with their teammates and, and have fun while they're together and leaving a bit of space for fun not scheduling every part of their day, allow them, yeah, like you said, if they want to go to lunch, they go to lunch. If they want to go for a walk, that's fine. If they just sit and chat, all good. But making space for something other than work when they come together, that's how you create connection. If that's your goal, creating connection, then don't make it all about work all the time. You need to create space for that connection.
0: Yeah, that's really made me think about that. I've got something really to think on and work out whether we're doing the right things in that space. Just as we draw to the end, what, one thing I mentioned I wanted to come back to earlier on, I want to make sure that, that I discuss, and it was the consistency and approach when you when you're starting to build high-functioning teams. And knowing that some organizations, even departments, are quite large, and individual senior leaders might have a slightly different approach, so they'll start to build family values within their teams about what looks high-functioning to them. And some people will do it one way, some people will do it another way, and some people might not do it as well at all. In many organizations within those individual teams, there'll be particular skill sets that will then come together in separate communities. And I've seen organizations where those communities can be a little bit dysfunctional because the individuals that are part of them bring different family values from their individual teams or, or domains, for want of a better phrase. How, how can we try and bring consistency there to take the benefits and the autonomy of each team trying to do their own thing and, and shift the dial? But then letting these cross-cutting communities work as well or trying to address dysfunctions that occur in cross-cutting communities.
1: Yeah, really good question. And I think it comes back to having a core belief amongst your teams. And that a core belief is my well being is important, your well being is important, and we'll do what we can to influence those positively. So if you're creating that microculture within Team A and you're working towards it in Team B, then a person from team A goes over to team B and they have that same core belief. They they don't know exactly how Team B operates because they're not in that in that environment day in and day out, but they have that same core belief that my well being is important, your well being is important, and we're gonna to work together in order to impact that in a positive way. So just having that to fall back on and being secure in the knowledge that they're also going to work towards that, that's a really good foundation to build from. You don't need to know absolutely everything about absolutely every single team if you know that that's the core belief of those teams and they're going to do their best to help you. So. Yeah, really difficult in teams that don't have that and teams that are a little bit dysfunctional. But that's what we should be working for, building that as a foundation. I'm important, you're important. How do we work together to make sure that we're both well and performing at a high level, functioning at a high level? So, yeah, it comes back to that that foundational belief Um simplest probably the simplest way to approach that there's a number of different ways and yeah it's going to change from team to team but that's what i would say would be common across all teams
0: brilliant simple but but a massive subject and i feel that we've possibly only scratched the surface in in the hour so that we've gone through is there anything that i haven't asked that i really should have done about this subject
1: um yeah what a question it's um it's been an hour and ten, so I can't remember what we've already talked about. Um, but I suppose one of the, yeah, if we could leave letters with, with just a couple of thoughts, it would be, A, give a shit and do something about it. That's the most important thing. If you're committed to the wellbeing of your people, if you actually care and you do something about it, then it's really, really difficult to go wrong. In that, and you'll figure it out as you go. And the second thing to always hold in your mind is, if you want, if you want function, if you want performance, and if you want to mitigate the risks of burnout, you're never ever going to be able to eliminate the risk of burnout because it's so multifaceted. It's a factorial. Uh, it's a syndrome. It's not. A, it's not a disease. It's a syndrome because we there's a specific set of symptoms, but we don't. It can come from so many different places. Um, If you really want to be able to influence that, then think about things in terms of resources versus requirements and always try to be balancing that. Think, what are the requirements of the situation, Uh, our targets? uh, What's the workload? What are my people required to do? And what are the resources that they have to deal with that? We want to try and get the resources as close to the requirements as possible and even slightly larger. If the requirements are too small, resources are too great, you're going to get a lot of boredom. If the requirements are too great, resources are too small, you're going to get burnout, overwhelm, breakdown. If they're very closely balanced, you're going to get growth. And then in periods where you see people start to struggle, how can we grow those resources, whether it be energy, whether it be time, whether it be manpower, software, hardware, whatever, and how can we shrink those resources to allow them adequate recovery? Thinking about things in terms of that balance, Requirements versus resources and trying to strike that balance as well as I possibly can. That's that's what it's all about, really. So care, yeah, take action, balance resources and requirements, and and you'll win. You're doing if you're doing those three, if you're doing those things, then you're doing a good job.
0: Great way to leave it. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you?
1: Uh best way is LinkedIn. Uh, all of my stuff is on there. We post on there pretty much every day. Uh, it's going to give you a really good idea of what I do, some um, practical ways to to improve workplace wellbeing and personal wellbeing as well. Uh, so Phil Wolfe um, at LinkedIn. I don't know. I will it? link you Phil in Wolf. the description. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: Um,
1: or Connects health, K-I-N-E-X, health.com.au. You can go there, but... Um, yeah, LinkedIn is going to give you a much, much better idea of who I am, what my company does, and yeah, how we can help.
0: Brilliant. Really appreciate your time, Phil.
1: Thanks, Alistair. Thanks for having me.